Hey, it's Mark. When Kate Cronin joined the biotech company Moderna in July of 2021 as its first chief brand officer, it was at a time when people were slowly emerging from the pandemic. Moderna, along with its counterparts Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson, were regarded with a healthy dose of admiration for their heroic efforts to develop safe and effective COVID vaccines in record time. But Cronin, who had spent her career to that point serving pharma clients as an agency executive before coming to the product side, had been in the business long enough to know that fond feelings are generally fickle. And indeed, her challenge quickly morphed into managing issues around Moderna's mRNA shot, from the steady stream of demonstrators gathering outside the company's Cambridge HQ to the anti-vax movement. These days, Cronin's still facing detractors. NFL quarterback Aaron Rodgers recently took to social media during Moderna's sponsorship of the U.S. Open to undermine the launch of its fall vaccine push. But she's now focusing her firm on a longer-term goal, capitalizing on Moderna's built-in brand recognition, but also communicating to convince the public and investors that Moderna isn't merely, in her words, a COVID company. This week on the podcast, Jack O'Brien interviews Moderna's Kate Cronin about her transition from the agency world to the product side, leading the brand beyond COVID, and how she's striving to make the narrative relatable through a mix of education and entertainment. And Lesha's back with a health policy update. Welcome back, Lesha. Thanks, Mark. Today, I'll provide an update on the debate in Congress over avoiding a government shutdown and what that means for healthcare. And Jack, what's been trending in healthcare this week? This week, we're talking about Parkinson's on steroids, budget Ozempic, and legalized magic mushrooms in Oregon. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Welcome to the MMM Podcast. My name is Jack O'Brien. I'm the digital editor at MMM. I am pleased to be joined today by Kate Cronin, the chief brand officer at Moderna. Kate, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you today, Jack? I'm doing well. I really appreciate you being on the show. I kind of want to start before we get into the Moderna side of things. You obviously have an interesting background that kind of correlates with our audience coming from the agency side into the world of pharma. Can you talk to us about making that transition? Because I think a lot of leaders either either live on one side or the other, but you've been able to go in both spaces. Yep. So I joined Moderna a little over two years ago, and I spent my entire career um, basically working um, on the agencies. So my entire career was focused on serving clients across multiple different categories from consumer health to pharma um, to technology, you name it. And so um, with that, I never thought I wanted to go on the client side because I was always learning so much and experiencing um, different uh, categories and I love to pitch business. Um, and so going on the corporate side was an interesting change for me because you had to learn, um, I had to learn a lot about manufacturing and we're manufacturing products. And obviously on the agency side, you were um, professional services. So it's about offering hours and time and, and creative. Um, and then when you look at the, the corporate side, it's about offering products. Um, and so that was a transition for me. And just learning how a company is run. I'm on the executive committee and part of governance. And so really understanding, you know, how do you run a big global corporation that's manufacturing and selling um, products is very different from the agency side. So it's been exciting and fun. And the way I look at it is I have one client now and that one client I laser focus on um, 100% of my time. 
It's so interesting to hear you talk about it in terms of, you know, the changes from one role to the other. Obviously, you joined during the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Moderna, obviously, like the like Pfizer and Johnson Johnson stepping up and creating these world-class vaccines that saved countless amount of lives. Curious about how that experience was for you, obviously, stepping into something that was so monumental and had so much worldwide focus. And then we can kind of go into how Moderna is pivoting out of that now that we're out of the emergency phase of the pandemic. So, yeah. So great question, Jack. And I think when I joined Moderna, it was May or July of um, 2021. So we were still in the pandemic, um, but people were slowly moving out of the pandemic. There were vaccines available and um, the the energy was back in terms of being able to get back to your lives. And I think um, my, my message to my CEO was, you know, we're viewed as the heroes right now, but, you know, eventually that changes. And, um, you know, my prediction came to be, unfortunately, it became um, a challenge in terms of managing issues um, around our vaccine. Some people didn't think we made enough vaccine for around the world. Some people were against the vaccine. And so we went through a series of protests um, outside of our offices here in Cambridge. And literally from one day to the next, I didn't know what they were protesting because it was either you we're against vaccines or why can't you make more vaccines for um, low-income countries? And we had some challenges with um, um, making enough for um, around the world because the reality is this was an R&D company that suddenly became, you know, a, a worldwide uh, well-known name and we had to make products for around the world. And that was not something that an R&D company could do overnight. Um, I think Moderna did a fantastic job um, eventually getting to that point. Um, but we had some challenges along the way. And I think those challenges continue um, when people say, you know, how do you, how did you make money off of a pandemic? Is that right? Is that moral? And the reality is it is a business. Um, we uh, obviously have declared that we are not going to, um, no one will be denied a vaccine. Everyone will get a vaccine if they want a Moderna vaccine. But there were challenges along the way. So I think I joined at at that inflection point when it was no longer, um, you know, I wouldn't wouldn't call it the glory days, but, you know, it became more challenging with different issues popping up. And you talk about that inflection point. Obviously, we're at a very unique point in the pandemic here where we're at the emergency stage. We're trying to move into this in-depth city. Really interested in how that's going. By the time that we're talking about this, the FDA has approved your updated COVID uh, booster. We're going to see today what the CDC says in terms of rollout. But obviously, there's going to be that fall push. You just re-upped at the U.S. Open in terms of being a sponsor with the primary focus of people are going to go get their flu shot. They should also get their COVID booster shot. I can tell you anecdotally, and there are a lot of well-meaning people that might say, hey, I've been through this. I got my original. I've got my two boosters. Why do I need another? What is the messaging from Moderna on that front? Because I'm sure there's a lot of fatigue out there that you have to deal with. Yeah. And and the fatigue is is real. Um, I'd say before COVID, there were anti-vaxxers. And because I worked in the vaccine category, I worked on Prevnar, I worked on a number of vaccines. And there were always anti-vaxxers who were just against vaccination for various reasons. Um, and now we've moved into uh, this new phenomenon of vaccine fatigue, to your point. And so you have a combination of anti-vaxxer, um, COVID fatigue. There's also this myth that, well, I've had COVID and therefore I don't need a vaccine. And so we, we're really laser focusing on education. Um, I think it's important for people to understand everything they need to know about vaccination. We're not obviously um, twisting people's arms. It's up to you as a human being to get your vaccine and decide what you want. But the reality is, um, 
you know, we, it's, it's on us to make sure people understand what is in the vaccine. Why is it updated? What, what is it? What is it? What's the issue with the new variant versus the old variant? Like there's a lot of um, misinformation out there and confusion. And I think for us, it's really about basically modeling after the flu market. Um, if you think about COVID, it's a, it's a top four killer in the U.S. Um, during the 2022-23 season. Um, it led to three times more death than flu. And so if you think about it, it should just be an annual vaccine um, the way flu is. And so we're really targeting that kind of messaging. It's just like get it once. Um, and for some people, you might need it a couple of times if you're immune compromised. Um, and I think that really will set the market into a, um, a steady state, if you will, versus you know, last year where people got, you know, two or three doses of, of the COVID vaccine and, and then they, they have fatigue from it. No, totally understandable. And I want to, you talked about the segmentation of the critics that Moderna has faced, whether it's on the pricing side or on the anti-vax side. Recently, there was a very prominent one with Aaron Rodgers attending the U.S. Open, crossing out your logo, saying no vax Djokovic in reference to Djokovic's uh, refusal to get the COVID vaccine. What was your response to that or what was the company's response? Because I can imagine you hear from plenty of people, but when it's somebody as you know, prominent as one of the most popular players in the NFL, it takes on a different weight, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, look, there. To be to be fair, I mean, um, we all know that um, you know Novak was is, did not want to take a vaccine, and that was very prominent last year at the U.S. Open, and we sponsored the U.S. Open. Um, and this year, you know, the tweet or um, the social media from from Aaron Rodgers, I think um, it's it's his prerogative to to say and do what he wants to say. We don't respond to that sort of a thing. That's you know, it's up to him if he wants to do creative, uh, you know, messaging around um, his point of view. I appreciate the response to that. Kind of pivoting off of the COVID questions here, obviously Moderna is trying to rebrand itself, or I shouldn't say rebrand itself, but put itself out there as a company that wasn't just a COVID-19 manufacturer. You're doing a lot in the cancer space, looking at other uh, conditions that your mRNA technology could affect. Can you give us an update on that? Because I know a lot of people are saying, what's the next move? You know, what's the sequel here? Yeah, so um, we're really leaning in on um, a number of different categories um, beyond um, COVID. So if you think about our pillars, uh, we're respiratory disease. So it's COVID, flu, RSV. We're going to have an RSV vaccine, a flu vaccine. Eventually, we're going to have a combination of possibly COVID, flu, COVID, flu, RSV. Um, So respiratory is a key pillar. Oncology is a key pillar. We had data last year and this year that demonstrates that our individualized neoantigen therapy is, is working in our clinical studies um, versus Keytruda and in combination with Keytruda. Um, and so that's super exciting. And then we also are looking at rare diseases um, and I think latent vaccines as well. So if you think about Epstein-Barr virus or cytomegalovirus, I and mean, we're looking at all those categories and the, the cool thing and the exciting thing is that it, mRNA actually works um, in our studies and um, across all these different disease categories. So for us, the challenge now is prioritizing. So which ones, you know, we're, we're limited in terms of resources. We can't study everything all at once. So which, which categories are we going to lean into? Um, and I think right now we're really leaning into respiratory, oncology, and rare um, those feel like that they have the greatest potential um, to happen um, soonest. So that for us has been super exciting. And what I want, what my role is, is to communicate this, um, is to make sure people understand that we're not just a COVID company and that we're a platform technology company and that platform technology is mRNA. 
and that we are able to um, use this across a number of different of different categories and disease areas. And so that's really what we say when we talk about the mRNA age and this changes everything. Um, it's, it's an agile way of studying. It's, um, we're able to tweak, um, for example, our flu, we're able to tweak very quickly um, and ch- change it up based on, you know, what the new variants of concern are. Um, and it's a model that's very different from typical uh, pharmaceuticals. And I imagine that goes into the fatigue, the vaccine fatigue that you mentioned earlier and being able to say, oh, this is a one shot flu, COVID, RSV. I did want to go with the messaging aspect because I think about it from, you know, people that I speak with in my life who, if I say Moderna, I think their first in- instinct is going to be, oh, I got their vaccine. I got COVID is the first thing that comes to mind. When it comes to that messaging, how do you measure success on that front? I imagine in the next, you know, five to 10 years, you would like to people to hear Moderna and they think, oh, yeah, that's where I got my RSV vaccine or they treat, you know, this condition and it's outside of necessarily just COVID? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a built-in brand recognition. As you know, um, prior to COVID, people did not um, recognize pharmaceutical company brands. Like you got a a product, you didn't know who manufactured it. Was it BMS? Was it Novartis? I don't know. Barely know the name of the product, you know, half the time. So I think now we have this great brand recognition. And so people recognize Moderna. And so equating Moderna with mRNA is great because then we look at mRNA and say, let's educate around why should you care about mRNA? And we're equating that with cutting edge and innovation because it is. And so we're connecting the dots for people so that when the next Moderna vaccine or product comes out, you can say, yeah, I know I've heard about mRNA and I know I have mRNA in me um, and I'm interested in, you know, asking for Moderna vaccine or the next Moderna product. And I think it's just it's just a very um, it's more of a consumer mindset that I think has not been typical in this category, because a lot of times it's usually the providers who are making those decisions. But I think because there's a familiarity already with Moderna and what we do and mRNA, I think it's just the next step is um, further educating and getting people to understand, you know, what are the products that are coming and being aware of you know, how our technology works in their body. And is there a certain latitude that comes with it, too? I mean, some of the competitors that you're facing off against in the COVID space, but also in the RSV and the cancer space, too, are established names that do have some history, some of it good, some of it bad. I think that, you know, there are plenty of scandals or controversies around Pfizer, Johnson, Johnson, you name it. But Moderna does come in there and it's like, oh, there isn't that. So I imagine there's a little bit of momentum that you're able to work with and say we come with something of a clean slate. Yeah, I mean, we are a relatively newcomer, right? I mean, we're more than 10 years old. Um, We were an R&D organization. um, only like this is really our second year, really first year fall season commercialized. And so, yeah, we have a clean slate in that respect. Um, Obviously Moderna has been in the news for a number of other things, but I think um, what we want to focus on is what does that slate look like? What is our narrative and how do we get that narrative out in a way that is relatable and in a way that people can understand? I mean, I talk about education, edutainment, entertainment, you know, combining it too, because we're looking at those. So, so the U S open booth was an example where people could come in and sign the lens and engage with the company. And so it's really about um, taking that opportunity to, to educate on, on who we are and why we're here. I mean, I, I say that, you know, it's important that people know who we are because people, you know, they don't trust what they don't know. Um, and the more familiar you are with the company and who we stand for, what our ethos is, the more likely you are to pay attention and want to engage. Um, And so that's really our opportunity, I think, from an enterprise brand perspective. 
Excellent. Well, Kate, I really appreciate you being on the show. I wanted to give you the last word here just again, because you come from the world of where our audience is, agency leaders, marketing executives. If you had any sort of parting advice to them as they kind of navigate this newfound world, we're still kind of seeing the dust settle from the COVID-19 pandemic. But if there's anything as it relates to medical marketing or trends that maybe our audience should be paying attention to, I wanted to give you the floor for that one. Yeah. I mean, I think um, my learning is um, COVID changed everything. And I think everyone became much more attuned to their health and every company became a health company. Hotels became a health company. Airports became a health company. Airlines became a health company. And so that's an opportunity also to um, go direct more so than we ever have in the past because people really do uh, care. And we've learned that they become very educated on their own health and they become educated on complicated science. People understand now what a variant of concern is. Um, people understand phase three clinical trials. And so you know, the doors are open now in terms of um, really reaching consumers directly and, and um, having that kind of discussion, conversation and engagement with them. So I encourage everyone to, um, to do exactly what, what we're doing and spend the time to work directly with consumer audiences. And I would say and use edutainment, education and entertainment to reach them. Awesome. Well, Kate, I really appreciate your insights. Appreciate you being on the show and certainly wish you and the company the best of luck going forward. Thank you, Jack. Thanks for having me. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. Lawmakers in Congress have until the end of September to pass spending bills to avoid a government shutdown. But contention between House Democrats and Republicans have resulted in a gridlock over a bipartisan bill that advanced last week. And a group of conservative lawmakers are aiming to block that bill from going forward, prompting all 98 House Democrats in the new Democrat coalition to urge House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to find a bipartisan solution. Without a short-term funding fix, the government could be headed towards a shutdown by October 1st, which could impact several public health programs, including the Community Health Center Fund, which sends federal funding to health centers, as well as several programs aimed at curbing the opioid epidemic. A shutdown would also leave the reauthorization of the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Act up in the air. Finally, a government shutdown could impact the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR, which spearheads the nation's global HIV-AIDS response. Some Republicans have sought to block reauthorization for that program, claiming that it offers funds to organizations that provide abortions. On Monday, Senator Chuck Schumer noted that he was working to get the spending bill, quote, back on track to, quote, get us one step closer to funding the government. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. Trending. And now it's time for the trend segment, which means we're welcoming Jack back to tell us what's trending in healthcare. Hey there, Mark. We start off with a sad story this week, which is that Representative Jennifer Wexton of Virginia announced Monday that she would not be running for re-election and plan to retire following a diagnosis of progressive supranuclear palsy, also called PSP. Wexton, who is 55 years old and has served in the House of Representatives since 2019, announced that she will not seek re-election next year due to the effects of the rare neurological disorder, which she called Parkinson's on steroids. The decision came more than five months after she publicly disclosed that she was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, which her medical team later clarified to be PSP. For those who don't know, PSP is a frontotemporal disorder that can cause dementia along with issues walking and balancing. It affects around 20,000 Americans, mostly those over the age of 60. 
The prognosis for the condition is considered generally poor, with people living around seven years after being diagnosed. Wexton said there is, quote, no getting better with PSP, knowing that while she will continue to receive treatments that largely target Parkinson's disease, they are not as effective for treating the former disorder. She added that once she leaves Washington early 2025, she plans to spend her valued time with her husband and two sons. And I think I speak for both Mark and Lesha that it's obviously tragic news when you hear something like this. Obviously, a public servant who has been dealt a really tough hand. And, you know, as I said earlier, the prognosis on this is not very good at all. And she acknowledged in her press release that there's no treatment for the disease yeah, you know, it's it's definitely tragic, as you mentioned, Jack, for someone who's relatively young to be faced with um, a pretty, pretty difficult prognosis and something that has no cure. Whether or not this was her intention, she is a little bit raising awareness about this pretty rare um, issue. Uh, as it's been mentioned, you know, she was misdiagnosed with Parkinson's for, for a while um, prior to receiving the proper diagnosis. And it's not... Um, it's fairly common for people to be misdiagnosed with Parkinson's when they actually do have progressive supranuclear palsy. Um, so I think even just the fact that this is, you know, someone who's in the public spotlight coming out and, and saying, you know, this is the diagnosis that I had. I was misdiagnosed despite having these symptoms. Um, and I think it does raise awareness um, for other people who might be suffering with similar symptoms or might want to get a second opinion and get the right diagnosis. Great point by Lesha. It was, wasn't obviously um, uh, the Congresswoman's in, intent, to, you know, to raise awareness, but she's she's doing that now, um, you know, and, and the um, response to her announcement on Twitter um, was was overwhelmingly a positive uh, in, in that regard, uh, you know, messages of support and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I just I just kind of think back, you know, to a story I wrote last December where people were saying this was going to be a year of tremendous neuroscience progress, uh, like we saw with the Alzheimer's drugs, um, ALS, and even in depression, you know, a new drug was approved um, for postpartum depression um, that could potentially change the way that disease is, is treated. But Parkinson's remains elusive. Uh, and, and you brought up the point, Jack, a lot of people don't know that it's much more than a movement disorder. It, it causes dementia and, and so forth. Um, but despite the approval of, I think, seven new Parkinson's drugs over the last eight years, none slows the disease's progression. And so this uh, underscores the need for more uh, research um, and Raising awareness, uh, you know, is a good thing in that regard. I know there's some pretty high-profile people involved in, in Parkinson's research philanthropy. Uh, so, what can we say? You know, our our hearts go out to uh, Representative uh, Wexton and her family. So, a few months ago, Lesher reported on the nature's Ozempic trend on TikTok, and now she has brought another concerning weight loss push to our attention. With popular weight loss drugs like Ozempic and Wegovy costing up to nine hundred dollars a month. Many consumers are searching far and wide for cheaper alternatives. However, those searches are contributing to a shortage of laxatives like Miralax and Glycolax, touted by TikTokers as alternatives for weight loss. The increased demand for the generic version of Miralax has led to empty pharmacy shelves and shortages. Searches for the drug have tripled on Amazon in the last year, and the buyers are increasingly young adults. This is evident by poking around on hashtag gut talk, a corner of TikTok concerned mostly with gut health, covering everything from inflammatory bowel disease to probiotics. Even a cursory search of gut talk reveals countless videos about Miralax and other laxatives used to treat constipation, bloating, and more. Not surprisingly, though, the budget 
ozempic trend concerns many dietitians and medical experts and i want to bring lesha in here first since you wrote the story you know we obviously send you down these rabbit holes and a lot of them have related to you know obesity and and weight loss this is one where it's you know almost kind of obvious like maybe you shouldn't be just taking large amounts of uh laxatives to in an attempt to lose weight but clearly a lot of people are doing it and it's got dietitians on the internet more than a little concerned yeah, you know, I, we've sort of touched on this before um, when it comes to TikTok, but I think this, again, exists in a, in a corner of TikTok that kind of toes the line between like joking trends and people actually following them. Because if you search laxatives and weight loss on TikTok, there's a lot of videos that come up where people are kind of a little tongue in cheek about it or like jokingly saying, oh, when I take Miralax before I need to wear a bikini on vacation or like, you know, joking that their doctor prescribed them Miralax and they ended up getting skinny. Um, and so there's like sort of a jokey element to it. But then when you sort of read about some of the, the, the trends of young people ordering laxatives way more than before, um, you realize that it's it's more than just a joke because people are really buying into this. Um, and it, it's beyond even, I think, weight loss because as we've talked about gut talk before, there's like an obsession on TikTok around gut health. Um, so a lot of people are seeking laxatives as sort of a solution to all sorts of gut problems they're having, not just weight loss. Um, and so... It, yeah, it's it's an interesting corner of the platform. And, you know, we're definitely seeing uh, TikTok exacerbate uh, shortages. Yeah, not only do diabetics need to contend with shortages of Ozempic and Munjaro, but now those with constipation can't find Miralax. It's uh, um, I can't believe we've gotten to this point uh, as one of the uh, gastroenterologists told the journal. You know, it's, it's crazy to think... Uh, that our collective bowel dysfunction problems have gotten so bad that we're, we're literally running out of stool softeners. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great line yeah, from I like the story. That line. Um, but, uh, you know, um, it, it's also interesting that there is a, uh, a hashtag gut talk. Uh, I thought that was interesting. You know, it just shows the many uh, different corners, as, as Jack said, that, you know, of the internet that we send you down uh, with these stories, uh, Lesha, um, really interesting areas to mine. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like you would, you would think that people would apply the same, um, you know, common sense that they're claiming to apply to sort of, um, you know, and sort of being very skeptical of things like the COVID vaccine, say, you know, where, you know, people that are anti-vax will say, hmm, you know, we have, we don't have a treatment for Parkinson's, Parkinson's after decades of research. And yet we have COVID vaccines after, after, you know, eight months, you know, like how come they don't apply that same skepticism, you know, to, to these areas? That's a good point. Uh, I'm sure it'll, it'll be a passing fad. Um, um, and uh, people will, uh, you know, realize that, hey, we should go out to, uh, there's a reason why Ozempic and Manjaro are so popular, you know, not to <laughs> to uh, do a commercial for the GLP-1. I think it's proven, if anything, when people say do your own research or, you know, believe in common sense or whatever, there's always a little bit of, you know, I'll do it for myself as opposed to you or whatever. You know, people are are a little more pick and choose on that. For our last story, we're going to get a little trippy here. We've touched on the emerging psychedelic space in previous episodes, but recently one state took a major step forward on that front. Last week, Oregon launched legal access to psilocybin, also known as magic mushrooms, to the public. Epic Healing Eugene, the nation's first licensed psilocybin service center, 
opened in June and currently has a waiting list of more than 3,000 names. People with depression, PTSD, or end-of-life dread are seeking access to the drugs that they hope can treat their mental health concerns. Oregon is not alone in this camp. Colorado voters passed a measure legalizing the regulated use of magic mushrooms next year, and California state legislature approved a measure to allow the possession and use of certain plant and mushroom-based psychedelics like psilocybin and mescaline. Health officials in the Golden State are developing guidelines for the therapeutic use of the products, but this is obviously something that is a major step forward. Obviously, we've seen leaps and bounds in terms of the policy related to cannabis over the past decade, but now it starts to see that there's a little bit of momentum around psilocybin. Still remains to be seen about how that interacts. We were having a conversation off air about the the federalism aspect of it too, where state policy may differ with federal policy and that could, you know, present some sort of obstacles for whether or not these treatments will be able to fully be accessible by as many patients as maybe would want them. Yeah, my guess would be that, you know, states might move faster than federal policy on this. Um, But it all seems to be pointed in the same direction, even if, you know, federal regulation inches slower behind. Um, We did discuss this uh, a few months ago, but in the summer, the FDA did for the first time um, roll out guidance for psychedelic drug trials. Um, So they outlined, you know, trial conduct, data collection, subject safety for researchers who wanted to explore psychedelic therapies for uh, depression, anxiety, and other mental health issues. So I know the FDA has kind of started to inch in that direction, um, but it is, it's pretty crazy to think that Oregon has taken such a big step forward. And it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that kind of rolls out on the ground and and works out for them. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it uh, also underscores uh, the fact that, uh, you know, there's a saying um, in in the general world, business world that at the end of the day, everything is legal. You know, it comes down to um, what the laws say you can and can't do. In this case, you know, the state is, is, is moving probably ahead of the federal government. But in, in this industry, a lot of it at the, at the end of the day is regulatory, right? And um, psilocybin, I think, Jack, you looked up, uh, is, is still a Schedule One product. Um, and so even though it's now legalized uh, in, in this one state, um, there could still be issues, you know, in terms of uh, um, accessing a controlled substance or, um, you know, Schedule One controlled substance um, from a regulatory perspective um, in, in terms of, um, you know, doing any business with, you know, the banking system or uh, taking across state lines, you know, any, any number of implications there. Um but uh, it's, it's kind of, and, and cannabis, you know, as, as was mentioned, you know, it's kind of living this dual life right now. It's, it's legalized in many states recreationally and medically, but on a federal level not, which is kind of holding back the industry. Um, it also highlights, you know, the unconventional ways uh, we were saying that people are looking to ease uh, their mental health woes. You know, I, we wrote a story um, last year about online startups um, fueling a mini boom in at-home ketamine treatment. Uh, startups like Mind Bloom and WonderMed, um, and uh, to go along with these walk-in um, ketamine clinics, um, and uh, so just uh, you know another way uh, people are finding to, uh, 
I guess, address the the burgeoning mental health crisis in this country. And, and to that point, Mark, I think it's important to underscore the fact that Oregon led the way when it came to cannabis as well. Oregon and Colorado were the first two states back in 2013 that legalized recreational use of marijuana. So there are a lot of parallels there. But I know that Lesh and I are both going to be going to the health conference next month. And I, re- I recall from last year having a few companies and leaders coming up to me saying, you know, we're in the psilocybin space. We do X, Y, and Z as it relates to magic mushrooms. And that was last year, seeing the amount of momentum that's taking place this year in Oregon, Colorado, and California. I'm curious about what those conversations are like, because to your point, Mark, there obviously is a demand. There is a, you know, there are a section of people that are already using it, whether it's legal on the federal or state level. It's just a matter now of how that regulatory framework starts to unfold and what that looks like from a medical treatment perspective. So certainly something we'll be keeping an eye on. And obviously there's going to be more activity in the months and years to come, but this is the first step along that line. Yeah, they they are leading the way indeed. We'll we'll see where it goes. All right. Uh, Well, thanks for joining us in this week's episode of the MMN podcast. And be sure to listen to next week's episode when I'll be joined by CSL Pharma's Chief Communications and Brand Officer, Anthony Farina. That's it for this week. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sone. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. <laughs>